I'm sorry that uh, what I study has got so many awkward words in it. Um, but uh, tomorrow is the 30th anniversary of my arrival in Ireland. So it's quite an honour to be able to give a talk in uh, the Royal Irish Academy on the day before my 30th anniversary. I think I made it three days before the Pope um, and had, therefore, an amazing uh, spectacle of, what, uh, of seeing Dublin at a very, very, very changing period in time. Um, Clare Island, this is Clare Island. Uh, this is the, the harbour in the uh, southeastern corner of the island. With Grawny Wales Castle here, the original pier added on to the uh, small congested districts board one and the much larger uh, modern pier that protects this rather vulnerable harbour from, from winter storms. Uh, I wouldn't have gone there in the first place, uh, which was in the early 1980s, 1982, if it hadn't been for this man, Frank Mitchell, who I was working with at various sites around Ireland quite early on, and Frank Mitchell said that uh, someone had to go to Clare Island, and he just had a look in his eye that suggested that it was going to be me going to Clare Island, and he literally sent me to Clare Island with, with a member of the Geological Survey, uh, and we spent, I think, about five or six days walking around making a preliminary map of the island because Frank's concern was that when the first survey was carried out, the chapter, the, sorry, the paper on peat deposits that was going to appear in Prager's first survey was not published. So of the 69 papers, or whatever number it is, and I'm rather nervous that this is being recorded because I have no notes, um, but of the 69 papers that was meant to be published, only 68 were. So Lewis was the only person who didn't, didn't produce the material. He became very busy... Roisin kindly sent me uh, information on Lewis. And he, he's to be excused. He was a very busy man, but he never got round to writing up. And Frank Mitchell was very concerned that we should get out and look at these peat deposits. No cause had been taken on the island, and little was known about it. And so in 1982, I went out to the island, um, five-day reconnaissance, and then for a two-week coring period, which I'm going to talk something about today, we took cores from various sites on the island, including from the summit of Knockmore, where amazingly there are pine stumps um, and three metres of peat. So the whole island has been forested at some stage. And I'll look at some of that evidence as well. The island itself has uh, really not changed very much, I wouldn't think, since the first survey. This is uh, McCabe's house in a picture from one of the, the second survey books. This is from the Prager Collection. And you can see this gable window here gives away. This house has been added to since, but these sheds up until recently still exist. Um, and the harbour itself um, is very exposed to waves coming around the corner of the island. And in fact, McCabe, the man who owns this place, has pictures of the sea coming over this wall during winter storms. There's a video of it. So uh, the new harbour wall presumably is there to protect this area. At the time of the first survey, or at the time of, after the first survey was done, um, in the, the middle of the 19th century, leading up to the survey, obviously, which was in 1911, but in the middle of the 19th century, in the 1800s, scientists were open to ridicule for some of their beliefs and frequently were portrayed in, in what was then the, the humorous media 
of the, of the twittering classes of the 19th century. And you can see here Darwin uh, depicted um, uh, as, as, a, as an ape because of his, his beliefs. Well, the same thing was happening to scientists interested in climate change and in the fact that there had been an ice age. And this is Buckland, the professor of geology uh, at Oxford. He's a very famous geologist at the time, and he'd uh, been visited by Agassiz, uh, Louis Agassiz of the Ice Age theory fame, and he'd, he had become a believer in the fact that there'd been an ice age in the past. And you can see here a cartoon taken from the satirical magazine Punch uh, from the the, the, later, from the, the last quarter of the, the 19th century. And the caption in the joke doesn't really bear uh, the test of time, as many cartoons don't. But it says, scratched by a glacier 33,000, etc., years before creation, or scratched by a cartwheel on Waterloo Bridge the day before yesterday. And this was, uh, this was hilarious at the time because this suggested that Buckland was a maniac to believe that scratches on rocks were caused by glaciers. And so he was being ridiculed in the same way that Darwin was. And interestingly, these, these scientists were household names. I mean, you wouldn't get into a, a, a cartoon feature magazine like Punch unless this is what people were actually interested in. And this is actually a copper plate, um, uh, is it a, lith a lithograph or some sort of print that was the original from the magazine and it was bought by one of Buckland's friends who rubbed the carriage out. There's the horse and cart. They rubbed this out with some sort of emery cloth or something, reprinted it, a picture, which Buckland then had on his wall for the, in his office without realising that this was a satirical cartoon. He liked the picture. And I think that's brilliant. I mean, Darwin wouldn't have gone the same way, I think, with this one. I don't think you'd stick that on your wall. But this is what Buckland looked like. This is, this is the field attire of the 19th century. He has a bag full of hammers and chisels. This is his map, and this is his bag, and he would have done his field work on, on horseback. So at the time of the first survey, we're only 50 years after first people accepted the ice site or the time of ice or the ice age, as it's become colloquially known, of Agassiz from the 1840s. Sort of 60 years, 70 years. And yet, the science that was being looked at at the time was it's quite advanced. We see some of the maps that were done for the first survey showing that people had a very good idea within 70 years of what had happened in places like Clare Island. The finding of erratics like this one in the Staunton Sands in, in southwestern Britain, and this erratic is meant to be a, a clast of an igneous rock that has come right the way across. Uh, the Atlantic and embedded itself on uh, the shoreline and then being covered with uh, sandstone on top was the type of evidence that was being collected by the geological surveys in the 19th century. And yet, even by 1894, textbooks like uh, this one, Geeky's textbook from the late 19th century, still depicted erratics to explain to people how a boulder like this basalt here seen on Donegal granite could have got to its position under the effect of ice. We now know that climate change in the last two and a half million years has been very, very dramatic. And this graphic just shows 
the global climate cooling, funnily enough, we're in a cooling climate uh, position, the global climate cooling from three and a half million years ago down to the present day. And there are a number of things that this graph shows. First of all, that our climate is rather unstable. That's not my hand. I'm doing that deliberately. The climate is rather unstable. The second thing is that the climate is controlled by the Earth's astronomical position relative to the sun and that two and a half million years ago we have the first extensive evidence of glaciation. So two and a half million years ago. And every time this graph goes down here, ice builds up at the poles and sea level falls. And every time the graph is in the pink up here, the temperature has risen to more or less uh, the same as the present day, plus or minus a couple of degrees, and we end up with interglacial periods or warm periods. Now, the other important thing here is that this is cyclic. This is going backwards and forwards from a 40,000-year cycle up to the last 800,000 years where it's switched to 100,000 years. So we have 100,000 years of cold followed by about 10 to 15,000 years of warmth. So many of these interglacials, we live in an interglacial. Many of these interglacials are only one sample long in this record, which comes from one of the, one of the global oceans. So the present day is there. We live there in that one sample. And only 10,000 radiocarbon years, about 12,000 years ago, 12,000 calendar years ago, it was intensely cold. And the scale of this change is something that's difficult to, for us to imagine because we, we think today, and I'm going to go back and talk about this later, of the, the global warming that's occurring at the moment. The temperature in these troughs would see, in this trough here, would see ice in Ireland about a kilometre thick to a kilometre and a half thick and stretching right out to the shelf edge off the west coast of Ireland. So th this is only a snapshot ago. It's only 17,000 years ago. It was intensely cold like this. And this has been happening continuously for the last two and a half million years. If we see a map of Ireland, we can see uh, that the whole island must have been covered in ice at some stage. These are moraines on the shelf edge. These are where glaciers stopped on the shelf edge. And at this time, there were big ice domes sitting on Ireland about 800, to 1 point, 800 meters to 1.5 kilometers in thickness. And the interesting thing for us here is that Clare Island is right in the way of this ice when the ice moves out onto the shelf edge. Every one of these bays was full of ice and this ice disgorged out onto the shelf. Bantry Bay, uh, Dingle Bay, the Shannon Estuary, Galway Bay, Clue Bay, and Donegal Bay all disgorged ice rapidly out into the oceans of the last glaciation. So we don't know anything about what happened a long time ago. We don't know anything about... I'm not even going to consider in this talk what happened back then because... We don't have the evidence from Clare Island, and the talk is about Clare Island. What I'm going to do is look at the last glaciation and what happened during the post-glacial or the Holocene. So if we go to the islands off the coast of, of Ireland, this is Inish Shark, abandoned in the 1950s. It's to the south of Clare Island. We see abundant evidence of glacial sediments. They've never been looked at. They've never been studied in any detail. And Clare Island is the exception 
because so many scientists have visited Clare Island, both in the first and in the second survey. But here you can see glacial sediments uh, of possibly two distinct episodes of glaciation. And this picture is just taken here by uh, the, landing, the landing stage there on Inishark. Inishark was very difficult to get onto in anything like rough weather, which is why it was abandoned effectively. So Clare Island sits in the entrance to Clue Bay, and Hallisey, as part of the first survey, drew these uh, pictures, these diagrams. This is a blow-up of this, of this and, and Hallisey drew on here drumlins, glacial striations or scratch marks, which he marks with an arrow showing the direction. And this work, done almost 100 years ago, is incredibly accurate. These people did a lot of field work. They went out into the field, they made field measurements, and they accurately wrote them up to produce this map, which incredibly is still reproduced. Although people won't admit it, this is still the map that is used when depicting glacial events in the western part of Ireland. We've improved on bits and pieces of it, but this person mapping in 1914 as part of the first survey really knew what he was doing. In fact, Singh's maps is Francis Singh, the late Francis Singh, marvellous man, worked for the Geological Survey of Ireland. His also famous map of West Mayo shows many of the features that have been mapped by Hallisey. And there again you can see Clare Island right in the path of any ice that comes down the length of Clue Bay. We know how thick the ice was from recent research. This is a picture taken from the top of Caron, looking uh, southwestish. There's Clare Island. There's the, the large hill on Clare Island. There's the smaller one. I think that's Inish Turk in the background, and it's not a very good day, and Inish Boffin would be off behind it. This is a block field. The ice has not covered this, not gone across this recently. This is a shattered rock field, what the Germans would call a Felsenmere, and this is shattered rock produced by freeze-thaw action. So the ice has not swept across the top of this. Modern technology and dating methods that measure the amount of time that a rock surface has been exposed to cosmogenic radiation allow us to date when this rock here was cleared of debris. This is a block field here. So the trim line, where the ice actually scraped across, is right here. So we can measure the thickness of the ice at this point. And because we have this rock scratch clean of all the debris, and we can take a sample from this rock and get a date. And these dates show us that this ice was, this rock was scraped clean of all debris around 16,000 to 17,000 years ago. So the rock up here has been exposed for far longer and this rock has been scraped clean. What this allows us to do is to draw a line on a simplified uh, cross-section of these maps from Nefin, which many of you know up in Mao, that marvellous uh, mountain with the big quarry on its, on its northern side, through Ben Gorm, there's Koron that I showed you a picture of with the, with the block field on top, the ice didn't reach the top of that. There's the summit of Clare Island. I've marked it on. It's not on their diagram, but I've stuck it on as a red, red block, which means that Clare Island was entirely covered 
by ice, right up to the summit of Knockmore, almost the summit of Knockmore, during the peak of the last glaciation. The ice then goes off and out onto the shelf. So we know pretty much what happened to Clare Island at this time. And we know that it was in the path of this ice as it went offshore. These are the the sites that they dated in this paper. It's extremely interesting work because uh, they've done the same in Wicklow uh, and I believe they're doing the same in the southwest of Ireland as well. So we have a lot of information about the ice. So this is what Clue Bay looked like during the last glacial maximum. The ice didn't cover all the mountains. Nephim was sticking up. It's not really what it looked like, but it's the closest picture I've got. Uh, And this is what you see if you look out the aeroplane window and don't watch the movie uh, on a flight to Seattle or to uh, the central part of Western North America. Because I just took that with with, with just a handheld camera, sticking it out the window. Uh, and it's the East Greenland, one of the East Greenland ice, ice uh, conveyors that's bringing ice from the central part of the country. But Clare Island's literally sitting in here in the way of this ice disgorging uh, out of the central part of Ireland. So here's Clare Island with its very characteristic shape. The harbour in here, Gronia Wales Castle, the lighthouse is up here, the highest hill here, at uh, just over 400, 460 metres in height, was just overridden by the last ice sheet. But the ice hit this end of the island and had to splay around the island before it would have started to encroach up and over. So when the ice hit the island, it broke up all the bedrock. The global temperature, the temperature here, at around this time, perhaps 15 to 20 degrees colder in mean annual terms than it is today. Sea level, 120 metres lower, but the crust depressed by the weight of the ice. So there's all sorts of things going on here, but the ice hits the bedrock at the eastern end of the island and it starts to tear up the bedrock and move it. And it's been doing that down the length of Clue Bay. So the ice contains a huge amount of limestone and red sandstone uh, as it scrapes across the eastern surfaces of Clare Island. And it leaves behind these very distinctive glacial deposits that we call till or boulder clay. And Hallacy in 1914 maps these and takes photographs of them for inclusion in the first survey. We now know a lot more about the processes that produce these deposits but Hallacy was well aware this island had been heavily glaciated. The biggest difference we have, really, between the work of the first survey and what we know now is, is the timing, the dating. Hallacy knew there'd been an ice age. He knew roughly when it was, too, but not with the sort of accuracy that we can now pinpoint events. So these are, this is a till laid down on the eastern end of the island. And we can do a lot of work on this till, and in 1982 I, I spent... Most of the two weeks that I was there, recognising there were two distinct hills, and that's probably the best picture I've got. There's a grey one at the bottom that's stuffed with limestone, and there's a red one on top that's got limestone in it, but is full of red sandstone. And these two tills are deposited across the whole of the northeastern side of the island. The limestone-rich ones form very distinct patterns mostly along the south coast. And this is the major ice. This is the major ice efflux from the Midlands 
pushing out through Clue Bay and smearing this limestone across the edges of the island. Most of the limestone is deposited where the ice is getting stuck. When the ice pushes up and through the coal and round to the north, we don't get the same deposition occurring. But these deposits of limestone-rich sediments are very clear. We can see them near the castle. There's a lovely drumlin here, which has some caravans in, in there. McCabe's house is just here. So we're looking from a boat back in towards the castle. And these drumlins are very distinctive along the south coast. That We're walking out along here, and we can see these drumlins. This is the flank of Crow Patrick up here. And this is a beautiful drumlin with its lee side, the down ice side, elongated along. And there's a whole bunch of these uh, on the island. And of course, Clue Bay is famous for its drumlins. Uh, the ones in the sea here have simply been eroded out as sea level rose during the post-glacial. The rocks are intensely striated. This is uh, bedrock on the south side of the island that's been scratched by the movement of ice. And there are fascinating forms produced by fast-moving water underneath the ice that Hallisey would have been unaware of, and he doesn't, he doesn't report these, but he does report the ice moulding left to right. This is a whaleback ridge of rock, and this whole coast has been smoothed by the rapid passage of ice past the island. It's very distinctive. There are some of the nicest glacial erosional features being exposed as this till is worn back on the south side of the island. Hallisey mapped all of these striations. We can even see bedrock that's being pulled up into these glacial sediments. Uh, as we, we now know how this occurs, but we can actually see this in sections. Some of the boulders being transported have this classic bullet shape to them. This one weighs you know, 50 or 60 tonnes. You can see that it, it's rounded, it's completely striated, and it's been dragged along within the sediment as the ice moves past the south of the island. The second, the upper lying, the uppermost till here, the red deposit made of sandstone, produces a very distinctive area in the northeast of the island. And these sandstone-rich deposits produce loads of hummocks. We can map these. This is a map from an undergraduate dissertation done in the early 1990s. And this student went out to the island for two months and mapped the various deposits. And we can see there's a very distinctive hummocky arrangement in the northeast corner of the island. Now, this is very interesting because this is a separate end stage of a glaciation. Here's Clare Island from Singh's map in 1968. Here is Clare Island in McCabe's map of 2007. Here are the moraines out on the shelf edge. And this is an oblique view looking back towards Clare Island from the northwest. There's the Bills Rocks looking in towards Clare Island. And we can see that Clare Island has very shallow water to the south of it. This is partly a moraine ridge that comes across here. And there are two moraine ridges underwater to the north of the island out here. And you can actually dive on these. If you go out and you put a boat out here and, and you go scuba diving, you can see these moraine ridges as though they've been laid down as a trickle of huge boulders across the sea floor. So they've been picked up on modern bathymetric surveys. 
so we can actually draw, we can correct Singh's ice limit and we know it hit the northeast corner of the island. So when we look at the northeast corner of the island, we see it's hummocky. That's not, it's a picture from a slide, it's a, a, a scan from a slide that I took in 1982. And it still bugs me that when I took this photograph and then walked down across this hummocky terrain, I missed the court tomb here. Because I went down to this lake, wandered round the lake, and I probably sat on the court tomb and ate a sandwich and didn't realise what it was. And it was only discovered some five or six years later by a local man out hill running. Still bugs me. It's a, it's a major disappointment that I even took a photograph of it. But this hummocky terrain is very distinctive and it is produced by glacial deposits just being dumped when the ice decays. It's very characteristic. Uh, it, it, it's sandy. It's got large boulders in it. And it's produced in areas like this. This is Iceland. Uh, this material is just being dumped as the ice decays. This glacier is retreating extremely fast. And it just, this material gets dumped in a sort of a almost random manner as the ice retreats. And as the ice retreats back, it leaves behind uh, piles of debris with lakes in between. And you end up with this rather chaotic type of scenery as the ice simply decays back. And we can see that here. This is from the flank of Knock Moor. Looking into the coal between Knock Naveen and Knock Moor, Cropatrick is in the cloud there, the drumlins are back here. And you can see, you can map this glacial limit through here from the hummocky deposits. And this hummocky area is fascinating. This is a, a final push of the last large glaciers. It shows up quite well in this picture. There's Cropatrick again, looking back towards the eastern end of the island from near the lighthouse. And you can see this hummocky ground in the coal here. Now, the interesting thing about this, this hummock, these hummocks and these hollows is that they store a record of the end of the last glaciation. The major end of the last glaciation occurs here around uh, 16,000 calendar years ago. And the ice disappears in a big flush into the North Atlantic from both sides of the North Atlantic, from America and Canada and from uh, Britain, Scotland and Ireland. And it stays cold for about a thousand years, cold and dry probably. We have very little evidence from this period in here. And it suddenly gets warm in about 20 years. It suddenly gets warm, as warm as it is at the present day, or just about. And then it slowly gets cold again. And it stays cold for the period we call the Younger Dryas. And during the Younger Dryas, there was a glacier in Loch Nahanagan. You can see the moraines as when they lower the water in the lake. You can see the moraines that date to this period. So about 500 metres up in the Wicklow Mountains, we have small glaciers. We have small glaciers in the west of Ireland, down to 200 metres above sea level, and even down to sea level. And there's one of these on Clare Island that's never been studied. We still haven't got back to study it. So there's about 800 years of cold with small glaciers in Ireland. And then within less than seven years, the climate reaches its present condition. 
So very rapid warming of the climate at the onset of the Holocene, of the post-glacial, and it then stays warm right up to the present day for the last 10,000 years. I put that in because when I was there in 1982, I walked to the western end of the island. This is not more. There's not Naveen. The drumlins are on the coast down there. Hamaki Till is in here. This is a corrie on the flank of Knock Naveen, and there are moraines that come out here from this corrie. And I walked down there because Hallisey mentions them. That's the fascinating thing. Hallisey mentions these moraines. Now, this is a laser, a light image, uh, a lidar image of the island in uh, an oblique view looking back in towards the corrie on the flank of Knockmore, uh, there's Knock Naveen, and we can see these moraines stretching down towards the sea from this corrie. This is absolutely fascinating, and it's something that really um, would, would warrant further research. If we look at Hallis's map, this is Hallis's geology map from the first survey, we can see maps this moraine here, on his map with a small bog behind it, and the Loch and Afuka moraines here, he gives them a name, Loch and Afuka, and he maps them extremely clearly, and these are these moraines down here. So I walked out to here with, with coring equipment. In fact, that day we walked here, we cored here, and we carried the corer and the cores up this ridge and took a core there and then down the other side. That was 17 years ago. I, I not, not even dream of doing that dream of doing that again now so that's even longer isn't it it's 27 years ago 27 years ago so we're not doing it again um, but you can see from this image that those moraines are very distinctive and here's a picture I took of those moraines in 1982 and there's the moraine there, there's Turk. this must be Inish Boffin I think behind here, it's Inish Boffin Inish Turk, a couple of fishing boats there's the moraine from the flank of Knockmore and I took a core in here and it's almost definitely a younger Dryas moraine. There's no late glacial sediment in behind there. So this is young. This moraine is possibly only 10,500 years old, and yet it's at sea level. So there must have been a lot of snow on Clare Island to produce a glacier so extensive, uh, and yet just to bring a, a moraine right down to sea level. So this is quite interesting and something that we, we, we will follow up one day, I'm sure. So this is what Crowpatrick looked like from Clare Island 10,500 years ago. It's got small glacier on it. The sea is frozen during the winter. And there's, there's Crowpatrick here from the island today. And that's pretty much what it looked like. Cold, dry, fairly barren, nothing growing, certainly nothing growing around here that beyond Arctic alpines and so on at the time. So at the end of the last glaciation, it suddenly warms up. The last glaciation is long and cold. It's about 100,000 years long. But it's very unstable. The interesting thing about the global climate is it keeps trying to come warm. It tries to get warm. And it shoots back to warmth and then dribbles back to a cold state during these 100,000-year-long periods. But there are loads of smaller warm snaps in here the climate then comes back to a warm snap but fails to stay warm and we get the younger dryas. And then in less than seven years, the climate warms to its present condition 
with one exception, when the Laurentide ice sheet disgorges huge floods from North America into the Atlantic, the climate deteriorates. And we can see that in this, in this temperature graph here. This is an oxygen isotope record from Greenland. And then the climate stays totally warm, totally stable, within one to one and a half degrees for 10,000 radiocarbon years until the present when we have this hockey stick effect as climate suddenly warms into the 21st century, which we are part of. So we're seeing that happen at the present day. It's going to be the biggest change in climate that's occurred in the last 11,700 calendar years if it continues at the current rate. So that shows just how important it is. So we live in this, this time here, in this sample, right at the top of the uh, Greenland ice samples, and we, can, we have annual records of the climate in Greenland from these records. But it shows us the scale that we're dealing with. So uh, if we go back to Clare Island, the, one of the other interesting questions that we can pose about the island is, is what's its vegetational history? Is it any different to the mainland of, of, of Ireland? And we can see here uh, a bathymetric. This has probably been superseded. I, I robbed this from someone's talk. Uh, this has probably been superseded, but it shows the drumlins in the inner bay. Cropatrick's about here. There's Clare Island. The Bills Rocks are out here. The moraine off to the north that connects with Caron runs underneath there. If you're on Clare Island and you stand at the, um, at the lighthouse, you can see an amazing rock right in the way of the tide out here. Uh, that the tide swirls past on the in and outgoing tide. Uh, but it's very shallow to the south and east of the island here. And my guess is that the island was connected well to the mainland of Ireland, well into the Holocene. And anyway, um, uh, the plants, the trees, uh, whatever got to the island certainly had no problem getting to the island across this short reach of water, which, of course, would have been a disappointment during the first survey because it was felt the island may have had something entirely separate or different to what was on the mainland. Now the evidence for this came from one of the things that we did on, on, the, first, on the first trip there in 1982 and that was to take cores from peat deposits. And this is a picture I took of the pine stumps uh, in the area of Loch of Ullin, the Loch of the Mill uh, in the northeast corner. These are the hummocks there's the lateral, the edge moraine showing us the actual extent of the ice at the edge of the ice coming down the slope, hummocky in front of it. This is all, this is all just dumped debris. And these hollows in between attract peat deposits. And you can see that Forbes knew this. When Forbes mapped the vegetation or part of the vegetation uh, on tree growth on the island, he didn't have a lot of work to do, as you can see, um, so he concentrated for a bit on fossil trees uh, because the uh, whole place is completely deforested by this stage, as we'll see. And he also took a photograph of these uh, pine stumps adjacent to Loch Avalin. And he mapped what he thought might have been the distribution of forest in the past. But he, he, was, he did this. My guess is, and I don't know if this is right, my guess is he did this because Lewis's account of the peat deposits wasn't going to appear or hadn't appeared. 
or he knew that it wasn't going to appear. Some, something made him map this. This would have been far more in place, perhaps, in Lewis's account of the peak deposits. But anyway, whatever the history of that is, it's lost. But you see he mapped uh, bulk-containing pine and oak. In fact, there's, there's quite a lot of different tree uh, stumps represented. They're very thick and dense in this area, but there are actually tree stumps right up here. There's pine stumps right to the summit, and there's plenty down here as well. So that map doesn't really show the true distribution. They're, they're, they're right across the island. But the island does provide an archive uh, in the sense that it contains peat deposits here. This is the lighthouses down there somewhere. This is from the flank, a very steep flank of, 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 of Croke Moor. And you can see peat deposits here about four metres deep that are being cut for fuel. Those peat deposits reach a depth of about 12 metres in the coal. And we've cored some of those sites as well. And there are also lakes like this one, uh, Poichin Fwinch. The, uh, the court tomb is just over here uh, on the far side of that lake. And you can push rods down into this peat of about seven metres, about seven metres of lake sediment. And we've analysed some of the material from this site. But the site I want to look at just briefly, and, and in summary to look at the post-glacial uh, vegetation history, is in the northeast corner of the island. This is the hummocky area in the northeast. And Lockervullin, where we see the um, pine stumps, is in this area in here. The lake is now completely filled up with sediment. It's no longer a, a lock of a mill, uh, but is completely filled with sediment. And if we use the LIDAR image and we go in and look at this obliquely, we can see the hummocky moraine beautifully. We see the extent of this glacier in here. We can see the court tomb here, and we can see the lake of Puerchin Finch, and we can see Loch of Vullin in this beautiful glacial meltwater channel complex down in here that we hadn't recognised until we started looking at the obliques of these uh, LIDAR images. Hallisey had seen them, because Hallisey mapped them uh, and published it in 1914. And here's these hummocks and hollows, which he doesn't really comment on, uh, and there he has Loch Vullin. Loch Vullin on an ordinary aerial photograph, we can just about see its last remnant of, of reedy phragmites here uh, on the landscape, but it's mostly gone. But again, when we use the LIDAR imagery, this is a LIDAR image of, uh, of this area of the lake, we can see the lake in here, and we did extensive cross-sections here using resistivity, uh, ge 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 geophysics, and using um, coring. And we can see there are two basins here. This one is quite deep, and here we can see the moraine ridges that show up very clearly on, on this beautiful image. These images are so high resolution, you can see sheep poo on them. So you can zoom right in. If you wanted to map sheep poo, this is the image. But if you want to do something sensible with it, then you can map the geology. It's extremely accurate. And you can not only look at it straight down, but you can do so. Steve McCarran from Maynooth has done these images for me. Uh, he, he's rendered the material from a very raw base. What he can do to them is make the sunshine from the north. So you can actually see things that you don't normally see. He can then move the sun around. 360 degrees, so that various things appear on the landscape. And of course we get there images like this, where we've got the sun to shine from 
the uh, northwest because that gives the greatest impression and the sun doesn't shine from the northwest in Clare Island so we can get the best impression of the landscape. But we can pick this up in detail here. So after coring in 1982 there and getting some successful cores but quite shallow ones uh, we went back as part of the second survey and Ryan Corcoran wrote up his master's degree on the cores that we took from Lockervallin. And this is a summary pollen diagram of what was happening. And obviously I can't go into large amount of detail. The last glaciation finishes about 11,700 years ago. And within a couple of hundred years, we see trees appearing. And, and if you look at the maps uh, that Fraser Mitchell has produced in a volume of the, of the Academy um, and in various papers, you see the quick spread of these tree taxa birch, pine, elm, oak, alder, ash and hazel ripping across the countryside, covering the whole of the island in less than a thousand years. Very, very quickly spreading across. And they go straight out onto the island and they form dense forests as we can see in this picture here. Hazel coming in very fast here, followed by oak, by elm, Pine and birch, probably a head start because these trees are less susceptible to the cold and they're probably not too far away during the younger dryers. So we can see Clare Island totally forested in the early part of the post-glacial. There's a charcoal horizon at about 6,500 years ago here and that charcoal horizon... Uh, more or less dates the appearance of alder and we also see disturbances in the vegetation at this time with a rise in the number of daisies, the appearance of plantain and dock uh, in the landscape. So there's been some sort of disturbance at around 6,500 years ago but it's a minor disturbance. It's not like someone coming in and sweeping through the vegetation cover but the elm decline 5,000 years ago is very marked indeed here. And you can see that at the elm decline, or not long after it, all of the trees begin to disappear. So this is almost certainly human interference in the landscape. This, this core is 11 metres long. Um, the resolution in it is, is, is very high, but this is simply this is a summary. This will appear in the second survey in the, in the botany, vegetation volume. And we can see that the white water lily, for example, gives us an idea of how much water there was in the lake. And the second major transition then is from this forested landscape to one that is being successively cleared, farmed, trees are being cut down, then there, there is a, a cessation in cutting and the trees make a slight comeback and then they disappear again. And this is all uh, phases of agriculture occurring on the island. But about 350 years ago, we see a dramatic change in the landscape. The lake is sedimented in. The, the open water taxa disappear. We get sphagnum and moss appearing. And we get heather beginning to cover the landscape. This is Coluna vulgaris, ling, covering the landscape. Cereals become extremely important. Daisies, plantains, docks. 
So the landscape has been dramatically affected from around 350 years. And that's a radiocarbon date uh, with an error on it, uh, 390, so it's 400 years. And certainly about 400 years ago, some, something has come in and dramatically affected the, the nature of the landscape. The type of evidence we get, these are all pictures from Clare Island samples. This is charcoal from 6,500 years ago. This is a scanning electron micrograph of a bog bean pollen grain, Menianthes foliata, very distinctive surface. A kinopod from Kinopodiaceae, open ground, taxa. Uh, plantago lanceolata, plantain, produced, it often occurs uh, concurrent with, um, with agriculture. An alder pollen grain, an oak pollen grain. Some pine from the early Holocene. And here a beautiful elm pollen grain from the point of the elm decline surrounded by fragments of burnt material in here. So we get a lot of evidence from this that allows us to reconstruct this image of the island. And this, this information is very similar to every... I, I, I hate to say it, but it's very similar to everywhere else in Ireland. The same pattern, forestation, clearance, elm decline, and then subsequent use of the landscape culminating in dramatic changes uh, during uh, late medieval times. It's extremely common. We can see pollen diagrams similar to this uh, from most of the island, from uh, Mick O'Connell's marvellous work on Inish The fascinating thing about this vegetation and environmental history of the island can be seen in this aerial photograph uh, taken back in the 1990s. We see here uh, a house owner on Clare Island growing potatoes in, in ridges. And these ridges that he's using are the same ridges as were used in the pre-famine of 1840. But these pre-famine ridges, cross-cut by a congested districts board wall here, go out and underneath the peat bog here, where we can estimate their age from the pollen on top of the walls here, these ridges are cereal ridges, cereal growing ridges, and they're over 5,000 years old. So the modern landscape with 5,000 year old cereal ridges was reused, and you can see they've reused these, they've, they've improved them in uh, pre-famine times during the 19, early 19th century, and they're still used. So this bloke is living on a 5,000-year-old field system and he's still growing potatoes on it. And that is picked up. This, this, this antiquity of this landscape is picked up from the type of work that we're doing at Locker Vullin. There are actually ridges that go out and underneath the peat around the flanks of Locker Vullin. And this is common in the Irish landscape. We see this from Sligo to Valencia. We can pick this up in the course of the cage of fields a beautiful example of these, these early fields. But here you can see old structures. don't know what age these are. Old field boundaries here that have decayed here and here. And this was once peat covered. The peat's been cut off the top of this and these ridges go off and underneath this bog here, which unfortunately is right at the edge of this marvellous picture. I'm not sure where that is. I think it's the junction... Uh, this road goes up through the coal. I think this must be the junction where the road goes off up to the lighthouse. 
disclosed it back down to the harbour, I think. Uh, I've not ground truthed it, even though I've had that picture for nearly 20 years. I've, I've not been and looked for it. So the early surveyors certainly knew uh, exactly what was happening. Um, this is a picture of Prager uh, and Stelfox here. We don't know who this is. I'd like to think it was, I must have a picture of Hallisey somewhere. I just didn't have time to, to dig one out. Uh, but these early guys are succeeded by us with a, a lighter-hearted attitude perhaps than, than them. But I bet they enjoyed themselves going out there in 1910. And it was certainly been fun working out there for the last uh, 27 years. But there's a lot more to be discovered still. Um, and certainly in terms of dating and, uh, and other things, there's a lot more to find out. I'd better stop there. Thank you.